0: Welcome to Lesson 5, The Prophets to Israel, Obadiah and Joel. Let me pray and then we'll get started. Lord, thank you for this evening. We pray that uh, you will help us to understand your word um, as it was recorded by Obadiah and Joel, that you'll help us to see how the prophets worked in the situation to bring your word to people and help us to know, because it speaks a lot about things that we don't quite understand with the day of the Lord in the future. Help us to uh, understand that too, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are going to go over two books, uh, very short books tonight. And like I said, we're going we're to do overviews of every prophetic book in the Bible by the time this class is over. So we're going to start with Obadiah. Now, Obadiah, um, you may have heard me talk about his name when I was talking about the divided nation of Israel. One house, you have a Yah or El root stem word. In the other house, you might have one to Baal. Well, Obadiah is uh, the servant or slave of the Lord. <clears throat> That's his name. He was named by his parents. Something that signified service to the God of Israel, Yah or Yahweh. And we don't know much about him. Um, this book uh, doesn't really have a what we call a chronological time frame attached to it. Remember how we talked about Amos uh, maybe in my last class, and it said two years after the earthquake. That was a pretty good uh, link to a year. Well, Obadiah doesn't really have anything like that. And if you remember the first sheet I gave you in this class with the timeline of the prophets, there's some more up here if you need them. Many of you have it. I have Obadiah here, and they say it's 848 B.C. That's what they kind of think, that he might have prophesied around that time, so in the 9th century um, B.C. Um, Here's why there's a problem with that, is that Obadiah is going to prophesy against Edom. And Jeremiah, several hundred years after this date, will also prophesy against Edom. So there are some scholars who say Jeremiah and Obadiah might have known each other and Obadiah might have been someone who helped him. And they probably wrote at the same time because they're dealing with the same thing. Well, there's a problem to that. um, And I I like the 848 B.C. date. And we're going to talk, so this is a brief excursus on how to date a biblical book. No, this is not how to go on dates. This is how to put in the time frame of when it happened. A biblical book. Um, so, how to date a biblical book? And I'm going to give you a couple of uh, of ideas of how we're going to date Obadiah. And instead of going from one to four, because one is really the key here, I want to go from four to one. So we're going to go backwards. Okay. First is church tradition or jewish tradition in this case and if you look at the list of books in your bible obadiah is right after amos and we know that amos was very early before 722 bc because he talks about the destruction coming up of israel to the north obadiah is right near there in the book and just so you know the jewish people believe that they were listing the prophets not in pure chronological order but roughly around the same time so Malachi came last where the temple had been rebuilt and Israel had returned from exile, and Obadiah is not there. Now, that's the minor prophets, the the 12 minor prophets. That's kind of how they did that. So if you just want to go by church tradition, it looks like Obadiah is uh, earlier. Now, third is archaeological evidence, and there are times that we find archaeological stuff that helps us date a book, when it should be, um, you know, when was that written, what does it refer to. And we don't really find anything with Obadiah, but I'll give you an example with the book of Job. Um, the book of Job, we have found ancient uh, writings and ancient, basically, clay tablets that have names that are very similar to the names used for the people in Job. Because Job, remember I told you before about him, Job is not Jewish. It's not a prophetic book either, but you get the point. It's not Jewish. The names aren't Jewish. He's more like a Near Eastern patriarch like Abraham might have been. He kind of has a religion like Melchizedek, the high priest of Salem. And so, archaeological evidence like that can kind of lead us to realize when we find these similar names, like, whoa, these are from this period around 2000 B.C., well, if it sounds like names in the book of Job, then the material for the book of Job must be around the same time frame. The same way that um, archaeological evidence helps us realize that the first five books, Genesis, Exodus... Uh, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, were written actually in the desert because some of the laws in those first five books, um, especially in uh, Leviticus and Deuteronomy, they deal with how to live in a desert where you go out and gather firewood, you go out and gather manna, and you clean your tent from mildew. Those are problems that would not have really happened in Israel when you're living in houses, planting vineyards, and dealing with stuff like that. So, um, that's another way that archaeological evidence. The other thing is, some of the animals mentioned that are unclean don't live necessarily in Israel, they live in the Sinai Peninsula. So, that's other weird, like archaeological evidence that may help you date a book. With Obadiah, we don't really. Have much in the way unless we talk in a minute about internal evidence. Uh, Number two, other books and similarities. And that's where you say, hey, this is pretty similar to Jeremiah. So maybe it's a later book around the uh, 6th century B.C., around the time of the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, Maybe right after the destruction of Jerusalem because it mentions... uh, Jerusalem being, uh, we'll say, spoiled, despoiled. Um, so maybe it's around the same time as Jeremiah. But then you get to some internal evidence. And uh, let's look at the book of Obadiah. It's very short. Hey, Is this like, the same Obadiah that did the prophets? Nope. Different Obadiah. Different Obadiah. Um, now... Let me say this. Uh, There is no evidence that it would have been that Obadiah. Um, First thing, this Obadiah, and this is all internal evidence, is dealing with Jerusalem, the city, and the destruction of it by some forces, and the Edomites plundering it. That Obadiah served the king of Samaria, the northern kingdom. So two different kingdoms here. But it's a good question. Same name. name. And by the way, just so we're clear, like Edom is over here in the desert on the other side of the Dead Sea. You can see where Jerusalem is. Um, And so it's over to the... Over to the east of Jerusalem. All right, let's uh, let's read it together. Uh, the vision, verse one. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Now, what you know, messenger and angel are the same word in Hebrew, uh, Greek. And the Bible uses it, messenger and angel are interchangeable. So it could be we've heard a report from the Lord and an angel has been sent among the nations. Um, rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock. In your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Remember, they lived up in mountains uh, in Edom. I don't know if you've uh, if you've ever uh, toured the Holy Land. If you've ever toured the city of Petra, Petra is where Edom used to be. Um, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how would you have, how you have been destroyed? Would they not steal only enough for themselves? So he's basically, he's going to start this rhetorical argument where he says, even if a thief breaks into your house, they only take what they want. Like, you know, just grab some jewelry and go. If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? Now remember the Old Testament, if you picked your field... The Lord told you, don't go back twice. Leave enough behind, basically like a form of welfare. Leave enough behind for the sojourners or poor people or people who don't have land so that there's something left on your vines. But he says, how Esau has been pillaged, his treasure sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap. Beneath you, you have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau be cut off by slaughter. So he's basically saying thieves only steal a little bit, usually. And you only get enough grapes for yourself, you leave some for others, but whenever what's coming to you comes to you, nothing will be left. Now in verse 10, because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you. Remember, Edom came from Esau. That's why I say your brother Jacob, because there is a, a kinship between these two nations. Shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually They shall drink and swallow, and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. Y'all know what stubble is? It's like throwing pine straw in a fire. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev, Negev, by the way, is the southern desert down here below Jerusalem. It's where Judah and Benjamin dwelt. It says, those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau. And those of the Shephelah, Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines, And that means hill dwellers, is what my commentary says. So if you look at uh, Israel, there are a lot of hills up in here, up in this northern area shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria. And Benjamin, which, you remember, is a southern tribe down here next to Judah, shall possess Gilead. Gilead was the hill country across the Jordan River over here. We talked about Gilead, I believe, last week uh, because that's where Elijah was from. The exiles of this host and the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zaraphath, And the exiles of Jerusalem, who are in Sepharad, shall possess the cities of the Nezib. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Alright, so it's a very concise, short book. And... There's a lot of poetry in it. Did y'all notice the poetry? No. (laughs) If you were reading it in Hebrew, uh, you would notice the poetry. So, it didn't rhyme, did it? It didn't rhyme.
1: You were reading in Hebrew and
0: we understood? Yeah, as the gift of tongues, you know. Uh, Well, in your Bible, um, do you have the text kind of Indented like this, um, yeah, uh, using a single column, mm-hmm. it, it's kind of choppy looking. Not all over, no. yeah. Some Bibles do that, some Bibles don't. So, for example, here's First Chronicles. You can see there's no indentations, just big like paragraphs. Text. But in this one, it's a lot of white space. Um, if you have a Bible like that, your editors are trying to show you where it's poetic, where it's poetry, where it's very choppy Hebrew. <laughs> Um, in the book of Obadiah, you have a lot of this. Um, we'll say the revenge of the Lord. Using the word revenge here, kind of, but but carefully, because God avenges His people, right? He He's the one who settles accounts. But it's this idea that the Lord will settle up for this crime that Edom did. Now, I've given you an outline on your paper. And this is different than you'll see in most commentaries. Most commentaries will divide it different places. I'm I'm letting the text divide it. If you'll notice, at the end of verse 4, it says, Declares the Lord. You all see that at the end of verse Mm -hmm. 4? And at the end of verse 18, For the Lord has spoken. So you can see I I divide the book up there, and I think it has three parts. One, the sin of Edom. Two, judgment on Edom. And three, the day of the Lord. So this is interesting because this prophet is not being a covenant mediator for Israel necessarily or Judah, is he? I
1: think he's saying you didn't help your brother. Right. You let him run over your brother roughshod, and you'll have to probably pay for that.
0: Does anybody remember in the last class when we went over the book of Amos a little bit and we talked about how the first part of the book of Amos, he goes around from nation to nation saying for three sins of Tyre and for four, I will not relent. For three sins of Damascus and for four, I'll not relent. And it's it's these nations who aren't God's people, but God is still telling them you have sinned. It's just. Basic morality that we all know we're born with as part of the image of God and you're breaking it so you will pay for it. So this uh, prophet is not really a covenant mediator between God and Israel in this book as much as he's telling this nation that knows God's people, hey, you've dealt treacherously with your brother. So it's, it's, it's interesting because even though he's a prophet and the prophetic formula holds up because he knows something's going on with God's people and God's got their back, but he's not really dealing with like Elijah or Elisha were dealing with the king of Israel has sinned and has to be held to account. So that's one little interesting note of this book. Second, let me talk about what Edom was doing at this time. Um... Under David and Solomon, Edom had been subjected to Israel. They were part of the Davidic kingdom and the Solomon, Salomnic kingdom or empire. In fact, um, they were part of the labor force and part of uh, when Solomon would control how work happened, he would use a lot of foreigners and foreign nations in his labor force. Under Solomon's son, Rehoboam, they rebelled and got their independence. And because they lived in the mountains and had easily defensible passes, Israel could not re-subjugate uh, them. Now what ends up happening is an alliance of southern uh, kingdoms such as the Philistines and a few others make an invasion of Judah during the time of Rehoboam and they sack Jerusalem. They break into its walls and they plunder the temple. Because of this uh, defenselessness in Judah, it appears that, at least from this text, if this is the time it's speaking of, that Edom jumped in on them too. And remember where the Lord tells them. The Lord tells them, don't enter the gate of my people, don't gloat over their disaster, don't loot his wealth, and don't stand at the crossroads. You have this idea that the walls are down, we might as well go in and help ourselves. And, you know, they're they're fleeing, so we might as well just kind of put some warriors at this crossroads and capture the people who run. And so it, it looks like there's a lot of of bad stuff going on during this time where Edom has just kind of sauntered over and decided to help themselves to a little bit of Judah's misfortune. Now,
1: we see that today when people are going out demonstrating something and all of a sudden somebody breaks in and other people are just join in and become thieves as well.
0: That that happens a lot now. You know, the window just happened to break at that shoe store and I just found myself in there with a large duffel bag.
1: Yeah. Decided to
0: take the Jews. Decided that <laughs> They needed a home. Um, no, that that does happen. Looting. And and this is what happens.
1: But practical application. God says, if you do that, you're gonna suffer consequences. Eat them. Wiped the
0: out. Right. So, let me read a little bit of historical stuff right here, talking about why. Some scholars put Obadiah back in the 840s. It says here that in 2 Chronicles 28, 17 through 18, uh, two nations attack Judah from the south and west soon after the northern coalition of Israel and Damascus inflicted a serious reverse on the armies of Ahaz. And it says that... um, A good majority of evangelical scholars started seeing that this 848 through 841 date, because it says in Second Kings 8:20, Edom revolted from under the hand of Judah and made a king over themselves, and so they were they were independent. Then in Second Chronicles 21:16 through 17, the Lord stirred up against Jehoram the spirit of the Philistines, Philistines and the Arabians that were near the Ethiopians, and they came into Judah and broke into it carried away all the substance that was found in the king's house and his sons also and his wives so there was not never a son left to him save Jehoias, the youngest of his sons so you put these issues together and see that this is a perfect time where the Edomites could have come in right on the heels of these invaders and just kind of helped themselves to what was left laying around Jerusalem so, one group of scholars says this happened when the Babylonians came in and Jeremiah was talking about it. Another group says, no, this is what was spoken of back in Chronicles and Kings when Edom was independent, revolted against them, and just kind of helped themselves to what happened to Jerusalem.
1: Oh,
0: I see. So, Obadiah verse 11 says, In the day that thou stoodest on the other side, In the day that strangers carried away his substance and foreigners entered into his gate and cast lots upon Jerusalem. You can see where this invasion is not something that ended Jerusalem because it wasn't empty like after the Babylonians just cart ever went off. But there are still people there and Edom comes in and they help themselves to it and sell some of the other ones away. So it does kind of seem to fit better an earlier like 840s date because of the internal evidence of what's happening, where Edom is kind of there pilfering uh, a a really humbled people, not going in after the Babylonians cart everyone off and taking what's left over, because there was no one there at that point. So that's why uh, we think the book of Obadiah refers to a 9th century war rather than a 6th century B.C. Babylonian invasion. When did Edom break? Off from uh,
1: Solomon, David?
0: Yeah, right after Solomon's death during the time of Rehoboam. So we're dealing with, um, if you look at your dates here.
1: 846 Jerome becomes king of? Yeah, so 848 Jerome,
0: we're looking we're at around king. the 900s. And so okay. this had been about four or five decades before this.
1: Okay. They've been
0: independent for about a generation. So Edom
1: revolts, it says in my Bible, in 845 B.C.?
0: um is that what your bible says well, that's just a, note. a little note i would say it's a little earlier than that um closer to 900 okay now 8 848 through 841 is when this episode where the philistines and the arabian raiders come in and attack israel uh sorry judah and take a lot of stuff from the temple And uh, if you want to read more on that, um, 2 Chronicles 21 is where you would turn, and you can do that uh, sometime this week. So, if you look at uh, Obadiah, no king or historical figure is mentioned. It's a very anonymous book. It's just talking about a nation, but not a specific king. And also, um, the nations who are mentioned, Edom, Jacob or Israel, Judah, the Philistines, Samaria, Gilead, Canaanites, um, those do seem to be earlier nations than later on. It doesn't mention Assyrian. It doesn't mention Babylon, the two big powers, a century and a half, two centuries later. And so, I ask a question, when was it written? I think it's about 840s, 840s. Who is it against? It's against Edom. That's it's an easy one cuz it does say that. But what is promised? Now the prophet delivers a message by God to promise something to Edom. And what does he promise? They're going to be destroyed. They're going to come back. All right, so here's what happens. Is this is really cool. After the Babylonians take Judah away, the Edom the Edomites also plunder the area again. But after that, uh, they really fall on hard times. A group of people come in and drive them out called the Nabataeans. And the Babylonians actually record that and talk about that little war. But the Nabataeans come in and drive them out. And they get driven into the desert down here below Judah where they kind of eke out a living. And that whole group of people, when the Jewish people come back, they're converted to Judaism by force. During the reign of the Maccabeans and the, and the independent Jewish kingdom, and they actually so these are the Edomites, become something called the Idumeans. And there's a very famous king who is Idumean. His name is Herod. The Edumeans, actually, after becoming culturally and religiously Jewish, end up becoming the kings of Israel. Under Herod, and so it's kind of interesting because you know they just get blended in almost as one people with them religiously, and then end up kind of ruling them. You can't beat them, join them. So yeah, well, and if you look at um verse twenty in Obadiah, the exiles of this of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, which lose in the north. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sephiroth, which is actually a Medan province. That's where a lot of people got taken from Jerusalem over into the area where the Babylonian Empire lived. It says, they come back, shall possess the cities of the Negev, which is where the Edomians went, the south. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau. So they take over the Edomites, which happened historically, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. They're part of the people of Israel at this point. And so you can see that this prophecy happens in the 200s. So we can can put a stamp on Obadiah fulfilled. You know, boom. God did it. The Edomites got punished, and then they got conquered by Israel. So it's really a cool little book. there's more that could be said, but we'll move on to Joel. So Joel's name means the Lord is God, so Joel you can kind of hear the Yah root and L like I said is the Hebrew word for God. the Lord is God. Yahweh is God, Joel. and his book is three chapters. I will not read three chapters but I will give you an outline in just a minute. So no king is mentioned in this book either, which, once again, it's difficult to date when it is, but there's more chronological reference in Obadiah. So I give you an outline here. Chapter 1, An Invasion of Locusts. Once again, it's a very poetic book. And uh, you'll you'll have chapter 1 just sounds terrible. Um, So let's start in verse 8 because there's a very good picture here of of what's happening. Chapter 1, verse 8. Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. So imagine a young woman who's been waiting for her betrothed to set a date for the marriage and take her away and have a family, and before the wedding date, he's cut down in battle. And she goes around in sackcloth lamenting because there goes the man she was promised to, cut down in battle, and she has nothing now. That's the picture here. Imagine a young woman waiting for Johnny to come home from the war, and he doesn't come home. Verse 9, the grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. There's not even enough wine and grain to offer to the Lord because the locusts have eaten everything. That's what society is like right now. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up. The oil from the olive tree languishes. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished. So it's this idea that people, like society, has just been cut down. Like a war, but different. A drought, a famine, something so terrible because these locusts have just gone in and devoured it. So that's chapter 1. Chapter 2 talks about another invasion. And it talks about, some people say, well, this is just a spiritual view of what happens to locusts, but other people say, no. What God is showing him is there's going to be two invasions one by a locust and the second by an army. And it talks about this rank after rank on horses of armies coming in, climbing over walls, going into houses, the earth trembling before them in chapter 2, verse 10. And it says, verse 11, the Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? So we have the day of the Lord again, seen as this future judgment. And in chapter 2, verse 12, there's a, there's a pivot here, there's a change. Verse 12, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. So Joel's a little different than Obadiah. There's actually a call for repentance for God's people. He says, look, locusts are coming and after them an army. But even now there's time. Break your hearts before the Lord and come back to him and see if he will change this. If he will, if he will hear your repentance and, and, and change his mind on the disaster that's going to come to you. So you can see how the prophet's working here to say disaster's coming, but there's still time. Now let's look at what he says to do. Not this, this idea of rending your hearts. The, the Jewish people, if they got mad or if they got uh, depressed or if they realized they had sinned against the Lord, they'd rip their clothes as a show of mourning or anger. And he says, no, no, rip your hearts, not your clothes. So in verse 15, he tells the people what to do. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Consecrate a fast. Call a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Set them off. you know, Make them clean ritually. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. He says, between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests and the ministers of the Lord weep. And say, spare your people, O Lord. Make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Moses. Remember, Moses would say stuff like this, remember? Don't do this, Lord. Then other nations will go, (laughs) What is God? God brought them out in the desert to kill them. Don't let those people say that against us, Lord. So it's very similar to what Moses would do. And then verse 18, it says, and it's talking here as if this had already happened, but I believe it's predictive. I don't think this is talking back historically. And then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I'm sending you grain, wine, oil, and you will be satisfied. I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you. That's why I think it's two invasions, locusts and an army, is because now it's talking about food and then the northerner. I'll remove the northerner far from you, and will drive him into a parched and desolate land. His vanguard into the eastern sea and his rearguard into the western sea, the stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and the vine give their full yield." So it's talking of a full restoration. The enemy armies are gone and the land is producing crops again. The locusts are gone. So you can see after repentance comes restoration, but it's even better than that. Look with me in verse 28. And that shall, it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. So you know that that verse is used by the apostles at the day of Pentecost to describe what's happening as people from all over the Roman Empire hear the word of God in their own language and start following him. So this Verse has been fulfilled and then uh, chapter three we'll get to in a minute talks more about the day of the lord again so you can see from joel joel follows a very similar pattern disaster's coming repent restoration's coming the thing about joel is joel doesn't really say exactly what's going on wrong, right? Joel doesn't talk about really the sins of the people, does it?
1: What they did to get
0: that way. Yeah, they did. Who's the army of the north? That's a very good question. Do y'all remember um, a story from the book of Isaiah about a northern army invading Judah? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, there is a story. The, the Assyrians under Sennacherib invade Judah. They siege some of the cities and they get to the outskirts of Jerusalem and the king proclaims a fast. Do you all remember the story? Yeah. No. Mm-hmm. All right, well, let's read it. Hold on. <laughs> so it might be Assyria. It might be Assyria. Just give me a minute to find it here. You're getting somewhere now. All right. So, in the book of Isaiah... Turn to chapter 8. You'll see some similarities here between Isaiah and Joel. Now, Joel is foretelling something that's going to happen in the future, and Isaiah is talking about what's happening in his time here.
1: What's the date of
0: well, Isaiah is in the seven hundreds. So Isaiah prophesies from seven forty to about six eighty. Now, if you look in uh, chapter eight, it talks about my my topic just says here, the coming Syrian invasion. Do you have that in your Bible?
1: Well, A Syria will invade it. A Syria will invade the land.
0: Yeah. So it says in verse 4, it says before this boy grows up and can say my father or my mother, mommy or daddy, basically, the wealth of Damascus, which is the head of the kingdom of Syria, and the spoil of Samaria, which is the northern kingdom of Israel, will be carried away before the king of Assyria. Hmm. And so... The Lord spoke to me again, verse 5 because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over reason and the sons of Ramaliah. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against him the waters of the river, mighty and many, the kings of Assyria and all his glory. It will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah, the southern kingdom. So he's talking about he's going to destroy two northern kingdoms. And he's even coming into the southern kingdom, Judah, this northerner, the Assyrians. Because remember, Assyria is up here in the north, above the people of Judah. Now, the people were scared when they heard this. But, and there's another version of this in, I think, Chronicles. What ends up happening... Is when the uh, Assyrians get to Judah, they declare a fast. Let me find this uh, find this passage for you. None of this part of the lesson was scripted. We were just going to talk about Joel, but you had to ask about the northerners, and I wanted to <laughs> I'm trying to.
1: Bait it. Yeah. Yeah. Israel's taking time. Syria seven twenty-seven.
0: Turn to second chronicles twenty nine. under King Hezekiah, who is a reformer and begins to serve the Lord, cleanses the temple, reinstates the priest, and then if you look down in chapter 32, Sennacherib invades Judah. Says after these things and these acts of faithfulness, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah and encamped against the fortified cities, thinking to win them for himself. And when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and intended to fight against Jerusalem, he planned with his officers and his mighty men to stop the water of the springs there outside the city, and and it goes through his entire strategy here. Verse 9, after this, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, who was besieging Lachish with all his forces, sent service to Jerusalem, to Hezekiah, king of Judah, and to all the people of Judah who were in Jerusalem, saying, Thus says Sennacherib, king of Assyria, on what are you trusting that you endure the siege in Jerusalem? So why are you still fighting me? And he goes on and says, Don't you know what my fathers have done to all these other gods? We've smashed every god that's ever fought us. Were the gods of those nations and those lands able to deliver their lands out of my hand? Who among all the gods of those nations that my father's devoted destruction was able to deliver his people from my hand, that your God should be able to deliver you from my hand? Don't let Hezekiah deceive you or mislead you in this. (laughs) Just mouthing off boasts against God, almost like Goliath. So verse 20 of chapter 32 of Second Chronicles, Hezekiah the king and Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, prayed because of this and cried to heaven. And the Lord sent an angel who cut off all the mighty warriors and commanders and officers in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned with shame of face to his own land. Because this army had boasted against God, and God's people had humbled themselves and sought him, God destroyed their army. And if you look at the historical record, this king went all the way down, kept conquering, kept conquering, and all of a sudden went back north, and then he was assassinated. By his own sons. By his own sons. So is the book of Joel foretelling... This and warning God's people to repent so that it can be averted and the northern are gone. That could be a historical setting for it. If so, it puts it before the book of Isaiah, which in this list, he is listed way up here in 830 to 810. um, Warning God's people of look what just happened to you a couple of years back. And look what's going to happen again if you don't follow the Lord. And so this call for repentance, if this is true, if this is the the way that the book was written, was, was listened to. The people said, I remember this in the book of Joel. And they got it right, and God took the northerner far away from them. That was 722 B.C. They lived another 140 years in their land after that and the Assyrians never conquered them, the northerner. Now, the Babylonians did later um, for their idolatry in there, but they did get several generations of peace because of this repentance. So if the book of Joel is referring to this, we kind of see how it plays out. Um, now, let's talk about the day of the Lord real quick, and then we'll close up. Day of the Lord, chapter 3 of Joel. What is the day of the Lord? Y'all remember Jesus talking about something coming up in the future from his perspective that something was going to happen
1: before his second return.
0: Yeah. There was judgment. The tribulation, that's it. It talks about the tribulation. Um, The prophets often talk about these future events. And they talk about them uh, with what we kind of call prophetic compression. So remember how I said there was a judgment coming against Edom. And it actually took several hundred years to happen. But when the prophet Obadiah got this message, it was... Judgment's coming for Edom. God will give them according to their works. Well, oftentimes when prophets talk about the future, they use that prophetic compression. The Lord will repay them. The Lord is coming. And so in the book of Joel, we have the same thing. The day of the Lord mentioned in chapter 3. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. So he's saying he's going to restore them after this, Great time. I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, which means the Lord judges. It's not necessarily the King Jehoshaphat here, who was just his name meant the Lord judges. And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and divided up my land and have cast lots for my people. So it's this same thing with Edom. The Lord's saying, I'm going to settle up accounts with the nations that did this stuff. These nations invaded my land on the backs of these locusts. And I drove them out. And then he's looking in the future at some point and saying, I'm going to settle up with all nations that have scattered my people. And so you, you have this... Call here where he, like, this is interesting. Look in uh, verse 4. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you're paying me back, I'll return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. Like, why are you treating my people this way, all these other nations? If you think you're paying me back, let's even up. You know, getting the Lord back for something he did. By the way, you think about why these nations may not like the Lord. Think about the Philistines. The Philistines captured the ark one time before David was king and took it in their cities as spoil, and then they started getting tumors in all their peoples. And so they sent it away, (laughs) like, get it out of here. They sent it to another city, that city sent it away, and they sent it back with two milk cows to Israel. So you can see where they're like, let's get them back. You know, they remember that ark? Well, God's like, oh, we'll settle up keep looking. Verse 5, For you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. So, the Greeks were up around here. That was the furthest kind of geographical reference point for traders because they traded with the Philistines. The Philistines were Mycenaean Greek lineage. So, he's like, you're trading them far away even to the traders with the coastal people. I'll get you back for that, selling my people. So it kind of sounds like a very similar situation he's talking about, like we just saw with the book of Obadiah, where Israel had been invaded and plundered by all these different nations, like the Philistines. Remember, the Philistines weren't even around during the time of Jeremiah and... uh, they they weren't an issue anymore. So this is why I think this book is early too, and other scholars do. Uh, verse seven Behold, I will stir them up from the place which you have sold them our turn your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken. The Sabaeans, by the way, were in the desert um, down around Saudi Arabia so you have the payback coming you think you've gotten rid of my people israel we will settle up and then they'll be the victors and they'll sell you away and so god's basically telling these nations who in this vision would be plundering jerusalem that he would get them back so these two books are interesting You can see the prophetic framework, but at the same time, they're a little different, aren't they? Any questions or comments about Joel or Obadiah?
1: Straighten
0: up and fly right. Straighten up and fly right. That's right. Someone over here?
1: Yeah, you know, there's there's always this... In, in looking at the reading of the prophets is how far forward in time are they off to you? And in, uh, in, in Joel, uh, the third book, in 17, then you will know that I, the Lord your God, dwell inside my holy field, through will be holy, never again before her invade her. And yet, Rome's going to go in there and invade and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, at first you read that and you say well that's that's saying how protected Jerusalem's going to be forever and ever amen right and yet it necessarily wasn't it just kept going through this repetition of, of uh, taking over <coughs> and then put back together again. right is this where does this this in chapter
0: three, how far forward in history is he the So one more thing about Joel and this there's so much information that goes into this stuff that I don't have time for. In verse 16 of chapter 3, the Lord roars from Zion. It's the same exact phrase that Amos is going to use. And he writes around the same time we think Joel is writing. Um, What Jeff's talking about is the end of the book, verse 17 on. So you shall know that I'm the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain. Jerusalem shall be holy. Strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day, the mountains shall drip sweet wine. Same thing Amos talks about at the end of Amos. And the hills shall flow with milk, and all the steam, stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord. Uh, he he goes on and talks about this future, this glorious future that the prophets are always talking about. Um, and Verse 19, Egypt shall become a desolation, Edom a desolate wilderness. Remember, we just talked about Edom. For the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land, but Judah shall be inhabited forever and in Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. What is this future talking about? What time frame are we in? The best I can tell you for the time frame that the prophets all look towards. In Revelation, (laughs) chapter
1: 21.
0: Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And so you have this city coming down at the end after God's enemies have been judged and captured and everything's getting ready to be settled. And this city comes down and God dwells there forever with his people. Um, Almost all the prophets have this day they look forward to that if you were just to look at the historical register, yeah, we can see that Edom got trounced. But we've never seen this, where his city is never tread by foreigners. Because who rules Jerusalem today, technically?
1: Israel. I thought they were controlling it of Jerusalem.
0: Who, who, who's on the temple right now?
1: Well, the oh, Temple Mount is yeah. Is, is... yeah, the
0: Dome of the Rock.
1: Yeah.
0: You, know. uh, you know, all that stuff. So do we see a fulfillment of this yet? Now, there have been windows where Israel has had it again. Post-Babylonian exile, they got it back. They built a temple. Well, then the Greeks came and uh, Antiochus took it over. Well, then they won it back under the Maccabees. Well, then the Idumeans came in and kind of melded with them and got their own kingdom. And the Romans came in and made them a client state. And they kind of thought they were getting it back. Then the Romans smashed it. And there are times in the Middle Ages where a Frankish Christian king would kind of put toleration in Jerusalem and the Jews could have it again. Then the Muslims would come back in, the Ottoman Empire. Now, 1949, the state of Israel, they've, they can see it. They can go pray at the wall, but they can't administer it. The Muslims have control over the Temple Mount. So they've never gotten this promise truly given to them as it's stated here by the prophets and I don't think they will and we won't until Revelation 21 but if you look uh, the book of Hebrews in chapter 11 talking about the prophets says and all these and it's talking about all the Old Testament prophets though commended through their faith did not receive what was promised. There's a sense in which God's promises to them have not been received yet partly because salvation history is not done but also because Jesus had not come, come yet. And just so you know that the way Jesus reads the prophets is they're all talking about him. And in Revelation 21, who is the king who sits in Jerusalem and rules the earth? Jesus. So the prophets see it. They don't quite know when it's coming. And according to the book of Hebrews, They die waiting for it, frustrated.
1: They weren't supposed to know. They were only supposed to declare what God gave them to declare.
0: And so you're going to get to the end of a lot of these books of the prophets, and you're going to go, this sounds awesome. When is it coming? Or when did we see this? And you're going to see parts of the books fulfilled, but you're going to see parts of them where it's just left open-ended, and we're still waiting for it with them. Now, we have it in Christ, and we know how it's going to end, but... Chronologically speaking, we're still looking forward to that point, to that day, to that part where Jerusalem is never trampled by foreigners again.
1: So plagues and
0: armies of the north or wherever are, can be read very symbolically. It can be. And uh, there have been attempts, if you remember the Left Behind books, they used that verse and some other verses in Jeremiah to talk about the Russians attacking uh, Israel, Tim LaHaye and Jenkins, Jenkins. Jerry Jenkins. Jerry Jenkins. They believed the northerner talked about Russia because that's the northernmost state above, at that time, Israel. And I don't necessarily think it's talking about Russia there. I think it was talking about a specific event um, with the Assyrians. But many prophecies, if you look at them, they seem to recur again and again and again. Could be.
1: How, how big was the Babylonian Empire compared to the Assyrian Empire at that time?
0: Um, at that time, Babylon was actually a vassal of Assyria. Assyria had kind of put their foot on their neck, and th- this is going to sound uh, very similar to our geopolitical situation today. <coughs> Assyria was dominant. Because they had good alliances and disorganized enemies, and the minute that flipped, Babylon got them back and just burnt their capital city. So it's it's almost like if you think about the first couple of years of World War II, everyone was scared of the Nazis. After that, everyone's scared of the Russians and the Soviet Union. Well. The Soviet Union got much bigger than Nazi Germany ever was and much more dangerous uh, to the world than Nazi Germany was at that time. That's going to be how Babylon is. Babylon is going to get a lot of allies and trounce the Assyrians, and then all those allies are going to go, what have we created? And Babylon's going to turn on them and take them over until God brings Babylon down by the, you know, Persians. And so... Well, the reason I asked
1: is is as you look at geographically on that map, if if Babylonia was anywhere powerful enough, th- those those uprisings over in 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 the Israeli area yeah. would have been opportunities to win allies because the Assyrians had to go right down they had to get pretty far from home right to pull that off, and I just wonder how much that that was. God's working some political stuff. And you, you, you said exactly what I was thinking. This Ukrainian Russian thing feels like a similar thing. Yep. Ge- geography has a lot to do with who's going to who's gonna come out of this thing.
0: Yep, and you know, it's one of those things where uh, just because you're allied right now doesn't mean you like the person, the friend of my, mm-hmm. what was it the friend of my, the enemy of my friend is my friend, or no, the enemy of, the friend of, Whatever it is, you get the point. The enemy of my enemy is my friend, friend. yeah. It's like an episode of The Office where they can't remember that one. Uh, That's how it was back then, too. And um, if you, also the route that Babylon took to invade Judah was the same route the Assyrians took. They came from the north. You can't go across that desert um, at this point in time logistically. Yeah.